All right, good morning, everybody. Everybody's talking about who's gonna win the Super Bowl. I'm just keeping my eye on that Goodyear blimp, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Somebody better be tracking that stuff in the skies, man. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on anymore, man. There's some odds on the blimp. Um, listen, before we get into the message, uh, I wanna let you know, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned the fact that by God's grace, you know, he's been adding to our numbers, even since right around the first part of October till the middle of January, attendance is up about 10, 12% just in that time period. And so, like Chris said, last uh, week in this uh, first service, there were over 500 people. And so we are gonna launch a third service. Again, I, I told you about this a couple weeks ago. I got some more details for you. We're going to start it on March 19th. It's gonna be a Sunday, third Sunday morning service. So here's the service times, okay? 8, 9.30, and 11, so you can see it's just a half an hour adjustment between the two services that we currently have now. And then our Shine Ministries, Special Needs Ministries, and then fifth through eighth grade is gonna meet during the 11 a.m. service as well. Give you an update on some of the needs that we have probably uh, next week, roll those out to you. Um, but just, you know, it's, it's great. You know, people are like, these are good problems. I'm like, yeah, they're still problems, right? but they're good problems. We're super, super grateful. But again, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago, in order for this to happen, we're just gonna need more of you to step up and step into the space, you know, of what God is doing. And, and again, like I said, for those of you that have been coming for a while and you kind of been sitting on the sidelines, this is a great opportunity for you to get in the game. And uh, Pastor Hudson mentioned the men's weekend, uh, March 10th to the 12th. Just to reiterate that, guys, uh, you need to be there. Uh, I'm gonna be there. It's gonna be an amazing time. You know, as men, we get so singularly focused and we often neglect the more important things in life. For example, a few, uh, a few nights ago, I was relaxing on the couch watching the Suns game and uh, Jill was sitting next to me, my wife, Jill, and, and I heard her say, have you heard a word I've been saying to you? And... Uh, and I thought to myself, that's a weird way to start a conversation. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so we get so easily distracted by the wrong things. And so getting out of this environment and getting up into the mountains at a beautiful, beautiful spot the voice of God does get louder, guys, so I just encourage you to be a part of that. If you wanna know more, you can talk to the guys that are flipping pretzels out in the lot uh, as well. So uh, this morning, uh, let's just say, the message is for anyone who has ever held a grudge. It's for anyone who has ever wanted to get revenge. It's for anyone who has ever wanted to settle the score or get even. We're talking about the ability to withhold retaliation. It's not easy because human nature is such that if you wound me, I'm gonna wanna wound you back. And even more so. And the reality is, is that we all have some measure of disrupted relationships in our lives. And one of the things that causes that disruption isn't necessarily the offense that's been committed against us, although that's a part of it, 
But ultimately, that's not what ruins many relationships. It's not necessarily the offense itself. What ruins many relationships is the inability to forgive. Because without forgiveness, there can be no reconciliation. So Jesus, once again, he, he talked a lot about this. Um, you know that the United States has more lawyers per capita than any other nation? Over one million lawyers practice in the United States. That's approximately one lawyer for every 300 people. Because we can't get along with each other, we, we have to bring up the weight of the legal system to bear. Lots of human conflict. The Bible is true when it says that we live in a fallen world. We commit offenses, and offenses are committed against us. In the Bible, there are several examples of God's own people offending one another. In fact, in the church in the city of Corinth in the first century AD, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? So in other words, what he's saying is, Forgiveness amongst God's people should, should be normal. Why is this important? Well, because Jesus said that the world will know we are his followers, that we are his disciples by the way we treat each other, by the love that we have for one another. Everybody's going to be offended. But what happens when the people of God, what happens when we're offended? What happens when we offend each other? Forgiveness is actually the way we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's been said that you're never more like God than when you forgive. It's important because forgiveness has as much to do with what's going on in your own heart, in your own life, as it does the person who has wronged you. Because our inability to forgive someone for what they've done causes these, these roots of bitterness to grow. And there's so much that comes as a result of that. Anger resentment. There's absolutely no desire to want to make things right. Therefore, there's, there's no hope of having any reconciliation as long as the bitterness is there. So Jesus speaks to it. Matthew chapter 5, the most famous sermon ever given. It's so brilliant. It's so good. It's like one subject after another. He just pulls back the bow and he lets the arrow fly and he just directs it right into the human heart. In Matthew 5, verse 38, he says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, so once again, we see Jesus laying down this pattern. He quotes Moses, and then he takes it to a higher level. He doesn't contradict the words of Moses. You have heard it said. Your Old Testament, you open it up. When Moses met with God, he received God's instructions. Codified in the Ten Commandments, there are others. So Jesus says, you have heard it said. He's talking about Moses. You've heard Moses says he received instruction from God. 
And then Jesus takes it to another level. But I tell you, here's what Moses said, but we're going to elevate that now in the Christian community. We'll talk more about that in a second, but I mentioned it before. Gandhi had a terrible misunderstanding of, of what Jesus is saying here, as do many people today. In fact, Gandhi famously said that if we all practice an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, then it won't be long before the world is toothless and blind. As if to say Gandhi had some higher moral code or moral authority. What he failed to understand is that this was spoken in a day that retaliation was expected. It was the norm. So what's being laid down here is, is, is actually a restraint on your desire to want to get revenge tenfold. So it kind of went like this. You, you, blind, my, you blind me, you, you take an eye, I'll take your life. You pop me in the mouth, I'll cut your throat. See, that's kind of how it went, right? Kind of all the lawless society. Human nature kicks in. You just don't want to get even. You want to get more. And so this was a way of saying, hey, the punishment for the crime is going to be in direct proportion to the crime itself. No more or no less. So it was actually a restraining effect on man's desire to get revenge. But then Jesus he elevates it. He takes it to another place because he adds something that just seems outrageous at best, really impractical at worst. He says, don't resist the one who is evil. If you get slapped on the right cheek, turn the other one. What is he saying? Well, a couple of things we need to say at first. What he's not saying is he's not arguing for pacifism because there was a, a time or two in Jesus' life when Jesus actually got he got somewhat physical when there was an offense happening to someone else, not necessarily himself, but when the offense was to somebody else, uh, Jesus took the appropriate action. So he's not arguing for pacifism here. Uh, at the same time, he's not saying that you should make yourself a doormat. To understand this is to understand this phrase in its cultural context. If you were to be slapped on the, on the right side of your face, it was a sign of deep disrespect and dishonor. It was as if you, someone was saying, you're worthless. I have absolute disdain for you. You're nothing to me. In fact, we learned that servants back in the day would rather be whipped in the back than slapped in the face. It was so degrading. It was so demeaning to be slapped in the face. They would rather be whipped in the back. It was an attack on one's honor and dignity. So during the Iraq, uh, the, the war in Iraq, U.S. troops, you can see this video, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, downtown Baghdad, there was this massive statue of Saddam Hussein. Remember that guy? And American forces rolled in with a tank, and they hooked up a chain around that statue. And they backed up that tank, and this massive statue just came crashing down. And it was fascinating to see the response of the people. Hundreds of Iraqis taking off their sandals, and you know what they did with them? I mean, before that statue hit the ground, 
they were slapping that thing in the face, the bottom of their shoes. Why? Because it was a sign of dishonor and disrespect. They didn't remove the statue's head. No, that's not what they did. They slapped it in the face. It was a way of demeaning and, and, and dishonoring. And that's what was happening in, in Jesus' day. Is this, this vicious, angry reaction indicating the ultimate form of insult. And so what Jesus is saying is, when you are dishonored, when you are insulted, people devalue you. You're figuratively struck. I mean, we even use this phrase today, right? We say, well, I, I, I feel like you got slapped in the face. We are to turn the other cheek also. Here's the point. The point speaks more specifically to what we are not to do than what we are to do. The context here is retaliation and revenge. So turning the other cheek symbolizes this non-avenging, non-retaliatory, but humble and gentle spirit that is to be characterized as kingdom citizens that are very different. In a bit, Jesus is literally going to ask the question, Christian, what do you do that's any different? If you love others in the way that they love you, what do you do that's any different? How about loving your enemies? Now that's different. What do you do that's different? So Jesus is laying down some kingdom ethic. We talked about how this entire sermon is like, he says there's two different competing worldviews. You have the, this earthly kingdom and you have this kingdom of heaven. Two very different value systems. What do you do that's different than the world's kingdom? So uh, this is a, a really, uh, th these are some really interesting words. Jesus is taking it to a, a higher level. It's been said that you're never more like God than when you forgive, and forgiving others is the most Christ-like thing you can do. The forgiveness is this verbal declaration, and it's really this promise where you recognize that you have been wrong but you're not gonna seek retaliation. And you're not gonna hold a grudge and you won't become bitter. And that is really, really hard. But here's the thing. This is actually in the nature of God himself. There's this remarkable scene when God is revealing himself to Moses, Exodus chapter 34. Of all the things that God could reveal about himself, this is what he, what he does. The Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious. Watch this, slow to anger. And if you know the history of God with his people, that is so true. God is slow to anger, abounding in love and devotion and faithfulness, maintaining loving devotion to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin, transgression and sin. So forgiveness is within the heart of God. In, chapter Luke, uh, in Luke chapter 15, uh, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. I, I love this story so much. There's so much there. It's a picture of this crazy extent to which the father forgives his son. It's all about God's forgiveness towards us. Here's this young guy. He's, he's totally defrauded his father, essentially said, I wish you were dead. I want what's mine now. And the father graciously gives it to him. The son goes out and he spends it all. He wasted. He's fake. Good Jewish boy, face down in the mud with the pigs. And the text says he comes to his senses. 
And he says, you know, dad has left the light on for me. He's left the door unlocked. I know I can go back. I'll humble myself, admit my wrong, and I'm going back home. And he does. You know what's cool about the text? It's really interesting. While the son is far off, the text tells us, the father sees him. And what does the father do? He runs to meet him. And if you know anything about old men running in that time, in that culture, they didn't do it because to run as an old man was to give the appearance that you didn't have your affairs in order. It was considered undignified. Old men don't run anywhere. They slowly walk. And so he sees his son, and what does he do? He hikes up his, right, whatever he's wearing, his, his, his robe, and he starts sprinting towards his son. And everybody's like, what's up with that old man? He doesn't care what anybody thinks because his son who is lost returns. See, the father represents God the father. And so forgiveness is in the heart of God, and so we're never more like God than when we forgive. And, and this is the message of the cross. Um, to his own torturers, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Man, that's a crazy example. But the reality is, this is what's been extended to us. And, and so it, it starts here in the household of faith. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as Christ, as God had in Christ forgave you. And at that point, we kind of have to say, ouch. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Like, like give us an example. Like, to what degree? Here it is as God in Christ forgave you. That's the measure of your forgiveness. God has forgiven you for every single one of your offenses. And ultimately, you've broken his laws. So, we really have no excuse to withhold forgiveness from those around us. So Jesus continues with the sermon, Matthew chapter 5, 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because in that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. So, among other things, this means that God shows common grace to all people. So, the very people who curse God, the atheists that walk the planet, God allows them to breathe the same air you breathe. That is the air that he created. That's common grace. They get to experience the rain just like you do. And here's what's really interesting about that. You know, it's, it's sort of this great leveling effect. This is the cure for your pride, even as a Christian. You can't look at your neighbor's grass and be like, oh, hey, why is the grass as green as mine? I'm a Christian and they're not, but yet, you know, it's like we both are on the same schedule to mow our lawns. <laughs> it doesn't seem right. Like, my grass should be greener than theirs. Not really because God is that gracious. The same amount of rain you get is the same amount of rain that those who even deny God get. That's how gracious God is. Now, I want to make it clear that there were moments when Jesus very strongly resisted the evil that was directed toward others. When it was directed toward him, toward him a personal offense, he absorbed it. When it was directed toward others, he got pretty active. An example of this is when, when he rolls up in the temple and he sees that the people who genuinely want to worship God, they're being taken advantage of by the money changers. And so Jesus is like, whoa, this isn't good. The people are being abused because of your greed in the name of religion. And Jesus isn't having it. 
And he actually, he actually gets kind of violent. He walks up to the table and he's like, and he's turning them over and then he makes a whip and he's driving them out. You're like, Jesus, where's the other cheek? Context. What he's saying, turn the other cheek, if you have a personal offense, especially if you are absorbing dishonor for his name. Christian, how pathetic. Jesus says, hey, don't feel like you have to defend yourself on that one. You can turn your face. It's okay. It's okay. But when there is a wrong committed against others, when that evil happens, Jesus steps in and makes it right. By the way, that's actually the message of the cross as well. So as Christians, again, this begins in the household of faith. We're we're called to treat all people well, but especially those in the family of God. Colossians 3.13, bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive. And here's your measure, once again, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So here's the question to ask. Do I really understand the depth to which God has forgiven me? Because that's your measure. To that degree, you will forgive others. And so we get very, very angry at at the offenses that are committed against us. But do we have the same anger at the offenses we commit against Others. So Jesus gives a really powerful illustration in Matthew chapter 18 to emphasize this point. We like to think that the early followers of Jesus had all their junk together, um, but actually they were, um, they were harming one another. They didn't get along. Many of them didn't like one another. You, that's the, one of the crazy things about Christianity. Nothing has done more to unite humanity than Christianity. You say that's a big statement. I know, I'll, I'll prove it to you. In the city of Antioch, The city of Antioch is where the the name Christian started to become popularized. And and here's why. The city of Antioch was one of the most diverse cities in the known world. So you had people from all different parts coming together, different races, different socioeconomic backgrounds, many different religions, you know. But then all of a sudden, all of these people from all these, these, these different places and ethnicities all of a sudden, they are gathering together under the same roof. And everybody's like, what's going on? What would bring a Jew and a Gentile together? I mean, someone from the emperor's court is gathering with a common slave. Okay, we don't, we've never seen, the world literally had never seen this kind of unity. It had never taken place before. In the city of Antioch, it happened. In fact, you get this really interesting list of names, and if you examine those names, you, you see that they represent people from, from all different parts of the known world, and, and even different skin colors. All gathered together, and people are like, um, what in the what is bringing all of these people together? And then they realized, oh, they share the same faith in this Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to be the Christ. So the word Christian literally means little Christs. The world had never seen anything like it before. Nothing unifies like Christianity despite what you're told. And and, and even as they came together, the potential for conflict was huge now. 
So Jesus has a question about this. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, and that was considered quite a bit. If you were offended seven times and you forgave seven times, wow, you know, you were doing really well. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So let's just say 77 times, 70 times seven, 490. So on the 491st offense, you don't have to forgive? No, what he's saying is count, right? We're almost at 500. What he's saying is as often as you are offended, that's how often you are to forgive. Seems totally unreasonable. So, so this is really hard to digest. So Jesus does what he does. He's like, let me tell you a story, okay? Kind of wrap your mind around this. Right? And it's gonna, this is going to shake up your whole forgiveness paradigm. He goes on, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, see that? See what he's talking about? The kingdom of heaven, where I come from, and what you represent, by the way, it may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So this king goes away and he settles accounts as he comes back. Either he's got land on loan to the servants or there's some form of payment that's required in return. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is a ridiculous amount of money. In today's terms, this is millions and millions and millions of dollars. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. It's not even, this guy's sell himself, his whole family, it's not even getting close to what he's owed. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, not necessarily because he wanted the money or needed the money, but he just felt compassion towards him. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the entire debt. So, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. You get paid about basically one denarii per day for work, so this is about three months' worth of wages. Very small in comparison to the millions of dollars that this dude owed. He seizes his fellow servant, and he began to choke him. He gets violent with him, saying, pay what you owe, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, dude, you're just wicked now. You're You're not getting it. This is messed up. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. I had pity and compassion on you. And now for the punchline. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's the moral of the story. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. It's a life sentence so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. Wow, that last line, that's, that's okay. <laughs> so it's like the servant was like, the master says to the servant, you don't mind receiving forgiveness of an unpayable debt. You couldn't service it. 
Um, and, and that's what God has done for you, Christian. So you don't mind having all of your debts wiped clean so that you could spend an eternity. Now, it's not that you're just being kept out of prison. You're being delivered to a much better place. So you don't mind receiving that. And yet you're going to withhold forgiveness for much smaller offenses. This is what we do when we don't forgive. And so the model is that which God gives to us. This is why I said you're never more like God than when you forgive others. So here's, here's a really, really hard thing to wrestle with. What happens if people don't ask for your forgiveness? You ever had that happen? What if they just don't ask you, right? It's always nice when someone says, will you forgive me? What do you do? You still forgive. It goes back to what we said earlier. This has as much to do with unwinding the bitterness that can grow in your own heart as it does with that other person, anything going on with that other person. Now, um, reconciliation is another matter. The, the relationship won't be reconciled until the person admits what they've done is wrong. You don't have to be fake about that. Um, God doesn't command us to forgive and then immediately trust either. He just says forgive. And remember, whoever has offended you has actually offended God more. You say, how is that possible? Well, in Psalm 51, David is he's just completely broken. And, and many of us have been there. It's like he gives this incredible, there's a book called The Body Tells the Story and the Body Keeps the Score. A lot of you are familiar with it. That's Psalm 51, by the way, because what David says is this. He's like, when I was involved in all the wrong things, all right, I knew it was wrong and I didn't talk about it. I kept it inside, I bottled it up, and he's like, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. He, literally, he says, my body wasted away. In other words, what he's saying is, when I was living a life of sin, physiologically, it wrecked me. And then in verse four, he says this, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. What about the dude that he murdered, right? Um, Uriah, what, a, what about Bathsheba, right? He's done a lot of wrong to a lot of people, but here he says, no, God, it's against you and you alone. What's he saying? He's saying, I would not know the difference between right and wrong unless you told me. So ultimately, every single one of these offenses, ultimately, God, it's against you because I've broken your law. That's what he's saying. So now you're justified in your words and blameless in your, in your judgment. And then God essentially says, leave the justice to me. Here's what Paul writes in Romans 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. In other words, this is Paul, and this is what some of you need to hear right now. This is what Paul is saying to you. Lay down your weapon. You've got to lay down your sword. Because God will pick it up. But leave it to the wrath of God. God has spoken about this in the past in Deuteronomy chapter 32, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So are we supposed to do nothing, right? Are we just supposed to do nothing? Are we supposed to ignore those who do evil against us? Are we supposed to ignore our enemies? To the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. What do you do different, Christian? Jesus asked, what do you do different? 
feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Why would you want to do this? For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And I think what this means is there's a sense that when evil people mistreat good people and they don't get uh, mistreatment in return, that affects their conscience. You know, that does something to them. It's like, I'm hurt, I'm, I'm, I'm wounding you, and you're returning the wound with kindness. It's like heaping burning coals on it. It's like they burn themselves. It's like they melt themselves. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This so frees us from having a heart that's bitter and hardened. And again, Jesus modeled this, 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued. This is the key, everybody but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God judges justly. We don't always get it right. When God judges, it is in exact proportion and measurement to what's going on in that individual's heart. No more and no less. God knows it exactly. He's the perfect judge. He's the only one who gets the sentencing right every time. We don't. God says, that's why Leave it to me. And the only way you can pull back from your desire to get revenge is to know that it's completely and totally in God's hands, and he handles it perfectly in his timing. Notice, Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges. So can you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. This is a tough one. (laughs) This is a tough one. So what is the Spirit of God saying to you now? What's he stirring within you? What has been the offense? What's your response? We know clearly what God is calling us to. What do you do that's different? Your part is to imitate Jesus, even while on the cross, to his torturers, Jesus says, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. So, Father, maybe the best place to begin is with a deeper and better understanding of all that we have been forgiven of. God, maybe that's the thing that we need to leave here with just that profound and deep compassion that you had for us. You looked on us with pity, and you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and you wiped all that clean. This isn't to say that the wounds that are committed against us, they're they're real. Sometimes they're very, very deep. They last long. But God, ultimately, justice is, that's in your hands. These are your laws. Ultimately, these are offenses against you. And you're going to make it right. One day, we're told every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We believe that's going to happen. And so we rest in that. We entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly and rightly, just as Jesus did. Father, if we, if we need to take the initiative and ask for forgiveness. Lord, will you 
by the power of your spirit, instill that within us, that we would take the high road so that real reconciliation can happen. And, and that, that's the story. That's the ministry of the cross, reconciliation. We want to be ambassadors of that. Ultimately, for our good and your glory, we pray. And God's people said, amen.